Thank you, Ryan. Wow, man. All those names. Now I know why you're going to that kibbutz in Israel, brother, with the Girgashites and everybody else. And thank you. Uh, Nehemiah 9, confession. The confession of God's people to their God. But more deeply, as we will see, the confession of God to his people about his faithfulness for free because of who he is, setting his love upon them time and time again. Confession is no easy thing. It is a dangerous thing, but it is a glorious thing. It is a vulnerable thing, but it is, as we are told, the place where we find true healing and the restoration of relationships. Reminds me of a story that I heard a pastor share recently about an older man. Old man was on his, his deathbed. It had been a slow process, but the doctors had only given him days to live, and his wife was by his side. He called her over and through tears said, Darling, there's, there's something I need to confess to you, honestly. It's something that I, I should have told you I really should have told you a long time ago. I need to confess to you that I, I have not been as faithful as I should have been in this marriage. It was a sad moment. They sat together in silence for a while, and then through her tears, she was able to eke out these words to her husband. She said, I know. I've known for a long time. And that is why I poisoned you. Oh, bad joke. Bad joke. I've known for a long time, and that's why I poisoned you. Say hi to Jesus for me first. Confession indeed is difficult. It is a dangerous duty filled with much delight, and we do it here in this place because here we are all under that. We are all together under the cross, which means we join with Paul in Romans that no one is righteous, not even one. Even if you have an argument with your beloved and you're 99% right, and I'm sure you are, I'm sure you've got a spreadsheet to prove it, you can still own the 1% if your desire and humility before the cross is to see relationship restored. And so yes, it is dangerous, it is vulnerable, but it is glorious. And here we find Israel, Israel, the children of God, Remember, it was Jacob who fled. It was Jacob who was wily, who was humbled, and his hip was busted so that he could no longer run away. He couldn't run any longer, but he did get a new name. He did get a new name. So the people have heard the word of God in chapter 8. They have stood for days now, hearing the story of God's word read, creation, fall, and redemption. There is hope. There's a Savior. When will Messiah Come, for seven days at least during this feast of booths, they have not only heard the word, but obeyed it. These, this is one of the great feasts in the fall in Israel. It begins with the Feast of Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, then the Feast of Booths, where God's people, it's weird, but God loves to give word pictures that even little children can understand. Go out and get some sticks and make yourself some little stick shanties. And live in a little booth, a little stick hut for a week, so that you, my children, never forget that I was faithful to your fathers and your mothers as they wandered for 40 years in the desert. 
They've heard, they've obeyed, they've done just that. And now as the people have heard God's word read, they are ready to confess. Not as a response of of shame, but really as a response of praise. To get honest with God. To be real with the Lord. And for healing. The walls have been rebuilt, but now the people must heal. And so the main point of Nehemiah 9, and I don't want us to miss this, is this, is that true healing, true rebuilding and reformation for God's beloved children comes when we are honest with God in light of his true and honest story for us, which is his faithfulness. That is how we are restored and right with the Lord. It's how we are restored and right with each other. God will never leave us or forsake us, but we certainly frustrate each other from time to time. Hello, welcome to a family, a family called the church. And so we are called to confess to the Lord and to one another and be healed. I think there's four things we need to see if we're going to understand this text this morning. Four things we need to see and really to do. The first is to get real with God. The second is to get the record straight about what confession really is. The third is to understand how we get right with God. And the fourth is to to go forth, to go forth in this way, because God allows his children to do this thing precisely so that they may experience his love and joy in a fresh way. Don't you want that? Don't you want to just know? And I mean, I do. It can all get so rote if we're not careful. To experience his joy freshly and then to go and be a light to the nations. Not to create a holy huddle and be afraid of sinners and those people over there who are those people bad, us good religious people. Not at all. But having confidence in the work of Christ, trusting that he is trustworthy to keep us, even in the storm, to go forth, to go forth and to share his love the world. So first, we need, to, we need to get real. That's what Nehemiah 9 invites us to do. This is a call to God's children in Israel 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene, and for us now, 2,020 years later, to confess. And I want you to notice that it's, there's nothing rote about it. It is an honest, open, first-person prayer to God. It's a prayer. And I think part of what Nehemiah is doing here, and therefore the Spirit through the Word, through Nehemiah to us in Santa Fe, is I dare you. I dare you to pray these kind of prayers to your God. I dare you to remember His love and also be honest about your need. See what He can do. See how He can heal. I dare you. Now, the context of this prayer extends beyond chapter 9. You know that. We were in chapter 8 last week, and really the finishing touch of this three-punch combo will come next week in chapter 10. The context is, first of all, corporate. Here we see uh, the end of individualism. God's people are coming together as a body, and guess what that means? It means that Some have been naughtier and some have been nicer than others, and yet they are gathered as one before the Lord. One body. To do what? Really, to to have this ceremony or this worship service of covenant renewal. Chapters 1 through 7 of Nehemiah build the wall. Build the wall. We need God's people to be safe so that they can do their work, bless the city, farm, and be a light to the nations. 
1 through 7, build the wall. But 8 through 13, now we need to build the people. We built the wall, now we need to rebuild the people. And you guys know how this works. In fact, plenty of you have been to homes here in Santa Fe where you, you get up to the home and I'm usually pretty hungry for dinner and some of you guys are cool and you're kind of retired, you eat super late. I have kids, we eat at like 428. And you gotta hit the keypad, beep, 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 beep. And then the of the gate to let you in to the compound. You drive in, gate shuts, and I'm like, this is good. I feel secure. No one's going to steal my 1983 Pinto. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but as you and I know full well, you may have a great house with a great wall and a great gate, but it's really what's happening with the people inside that house that makes it a home or not, that makes it a place of light and beauty and glory and power. It's what's happening with the people inside the home, not the size of the wall, that determines whether or not the joy in that house, the joy of the Lord overflows to keep the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So they have gathered to be a people now rebuilt, to hear God's word, to confess their need, and to once again renew their vows. Healing starts here. In James uh, chapter 5, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, writes to God's children. He says that you need to confess your sins that you might be healed. Psalm 32, David says, my bones were wasting away. I was holding it in. I was angry. I was frustrated. I had a certain number of facts. I had created a story about those facts. And man... It's just eating away at me. The Lord says, no. Healing starts when we confess. Now consider a hurting marriage. If any of you in this room are married, you, you know that marriages have their ups and downs. Some of them have very difficult times. Uh, I've done a lot of marriage counseling um, over the last four years and in the entirety of my ministry. And if I could distill a thing that creates a spark of hope where there is deep brokenness. Because usually when people get to you, it's already in triage, right? What do you do? The thing that I would say that, that is the spark of hope is, is simply this. That, that one party at least, but hopefully both, is willing to humbly take the low place and confess. Even if the other person has done most of the wrongdoing. To humbly take the low place and say, I'm going to own my part. Not just I'm sorry, but ownership also means will you forgive me? I'm sorry is I'm sorry and that's cool, right? That's not weak enough for the gospel. It has to be more than I'm sorry. I'm glad you feel sorrow. Good. But you have heard a relationship. The next step must be taken, which is will you please forgive me for the sin that I have done. This is where the healing begins. And so that's what the Israelites do. They confess both past and present sins. Which sounds really weird to us. Why would they confess the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers and grandmothers? Let me tell you. It's not to beat themselves up. It's not to fashion for themselves a 90 pound black leather penitente whip. So that they can beat the heck out of themselves. So that they can increase their guilt 
so that hopefully, if they're guilty enough and shameful enough, well, God will look down and say, okay, that's enough. Thank you. You've done your part. Indeed, that would be exactly what the gods of Assyria and Babylon and Persia under Artaxerxes would demand. I may meet you halfway, but you better uh, take care of some of your business first. And I expect some serious groveling. Not at all. They confess those sins. Why? Because they understand the reality of human nature. It's not just that the people have done particular sins. It's that they themselves are in the line of Adam. They've just heard the stories reread, Genesis, all the way through. Creation, fall, redemption, and someday, oh, we long for it, consummation. They understand that although they have individually sinned in particular ways, they are by nature sinners through their first father, Adam. And so they need help, not just for their own sins, but for their nature itself. Now, what do they confess? It's interesting what the text points us to. They really confess idolatry. Again, this seems really weird to us, right? I mean, we don't live in a place with a bunch of, well, actually, Santa Fe, we kind of do. Never mind. A bunch of like little statues and everything else going on, right? I mean, Paul walks into Athens in, in Acts 17 and goes, whoa, this is a city full of idols. By the way, I'm not hating on you if you got a little statue, okay? So don't email me about that this week. The point here is this. We have very respectable idols in 2020. Money, having my identity in my, you know, in my education or in my family. Here's the way to identify your idols. And this is a hard thing for me to do. Ouch. Woo. It hurt. What are the things in my life that if God were to take them away, I would be like, uh-uh, dude. You don't get to go there. Too much of who I am and what I love and my identity is tied up there. And we all have them, folks. We do. So that's what they confess. The fact that since their first father, Adam, we've all kind of been believing that lie in the garden. Did God really say? And as a response to that lie that we've believed, we've all sort of tried to be, be our own gods in certain ways. Of course, this doesn't mean that you're as bad as you possibly could be. And we all know plenty of folks out in the world who don't trust Jesus who are really wonderful people. No, the point is this, that God is holy and righteous, and we are indeed breakers of his law. That's why we see in the history of Israel all these cycles, and this should encourage us, by the way. The history of Israel should make you go, thank you, Jesus. Because time and time again, the Lord says, I love you. They say, I love you. And then just like little kids, they go out and do dumb stuff. Can you please not slam the door? Please, in Jesus' name. Can you turn the lights off? Don't touch the thermostat. And the list goes on and gets bigger and bigger as they get bigger and bigger and, you know, have a mind of their own. They seem stuck in the cycle of Proverbs 22 so often, a dog returning to its vomit. Some of y'all have dogs that do that. That's gross. But it's not your fault. Because I know, I'm looking out here, I know some of you have dogs that have lived a better dog life than 99% of people on this planet. And they still go back to their own vomit. You're like, I have got food for you. I will give you wet food. I've got a huge bowl. And it doesn't matter. It's in them. And so Nehemiah 9 is not. You'll totally butcher this text if you miss this. You'll get it wrong. You'll get God wrong. And you'll be mad at God. Nehemiah is not designed, Nehemiah 9, to, you know, to beat us up. Be better confessors. Nehemiah 9 is the children, the already children of Israel saying, 
Lord, we feel our need for you. And we want healing. We've got this great wall, but we want a restored relationship with our God. So that, remember, chapters 5, 6, and 7, opposition, the nobles, these weird predatory banking practices that they were engaging in. We want to be reconciled to each other. So we've got to get real about our need. And only then can we get the record straight. Can we answer the questions of how shall we confess and who hears it and what is done in the process? As I said, this is a prayer. Outside of the Psalms, this is the longest prayed prayer in the entire Bible. One pastor I listened to has a lot of free time, and so he counted up all the words in this prayer. 1,177 words. That's what they're saying in verse 5 when the, when the Levites say, stand up and let's bless the Lord. Confession, not in the context of self-loathing, but worship. Stand up and pray, let's bless the Lord together. And if we could read this whole prayer, and I really hope you do, go home and read it from verse 6 all the way up to verse 37, Nehemiah 9. You would see that this prayer is not at all a mere counting up of all their failures. But it deeply focuses on the love and faithfulness and work of God. It is the long history of God's children Israel. Biblical theology, we say. Meaning the history of redemption. Starts with creation, goes to Abraham. Then we get Moses, freedom from slavery, wandering in the wilderness all the way up through the prophets to the days of Nehemiah. They remember their own story so they can remember who God is for them in their story. This is what is meant by covenant renewal, focusing on the bigness and the faithfulness of God. That's why the key figure in this text is not Moses and it's not David. Did you catch who it was? It's Abraham. Little old Abraham. He might as well have been from New Mexico, bro. He was like from nowhere. Little ghetto dude that walked out of Ur of the Chaldeans, wandering across the desert with a bag full of enchiladas and a little bit of hope and a little bit of faith and said, God, I'm going to follow you. I have no idea what you're doing. And the Lord said, buckle up, mijo, because your children are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. Nothing could have been more unbelievable to this little ancient Near Eastern nomad. And God says, no, I've made a covenant of grace. That covenant of grace is my promise to bring my people into my family, and it is a promise I will keep forever. And that's why it is extremely important, as we get into Nehemiah 9 here, that we don't think that somehow they are confessing to be saved. Somehow they are confessing to get into relationship with God. It's the opposite. They have already been adopted. They are already in God's family. They already have God's name. They've already been circumcised on the eighth day. They've already been raised up hearing the word of the Torah. Kevin D. Young puts it this way, and I thought this was a great quote. Mind you, the cleansing, the confessing, the making right of relationship is not like the expunging of a guilty record before the judge. That's already been accomplished. This confessing and cleansing is much more like the scraping of barnacles off the hole of a ship so it can move freely again, so they can do what God wants them to do. 
We need confession of sin before God like a child needs to own up to her mistakes before mom and dad. Not to earn their love, but to rest in it and know it more fully. Does that make sense? Because I'm not going to be able to go on unless that makes sense. Can I get an amen or something? All right. That's big, you guys, because if we see this prayer of confession as somehow their earning of favor or status or righteousness with God will miss the whole thing. They're already in the family. They've just been disobedient children like we all are, and they long to be restored to their loving father and as a result to one another. So the prayer shows us that the problem is not mostly horizontal, but really vertical. And so is the answer. If you read this prayer, and I hope you do, and I love this, I mean, I don't want to get, I feel my inner Doug Swaggerty coming on, man. This is where, this is emotional for me because this is my favorite part. In this prayer, if you read it, every but they, and there's a lot of but they's, but they did this, but they turned away, but they rejected me, but they killed the prophets, but they, but they, but they, there's a lot of them. For every single but they in this prayer, for every but they, there is a better but God. Every time. And this is why they are led to praise. Confession and worship are bound together. The truth of man is revealed, but then hidden with Christ and God as the truth of God is revealed. And so this is what it means then for us to get right. That there is hope and healing in confession. Where is it? It is not in the quality of your sackcloth and ashes. It is not in the quality of how, how religiously good you do it. You know, are the ashes imposed just right? Is the sackcloth sown in just such a way? It's not in the quantity of your words, even though this is a long prayer. It's not even found in the sincerity of our wailing hearts. No, there is nothing subjective about it. It is not in the finite response of the subject, but in the infinite response of the object, our Savior. So it doesn't store, but restores. What freedom. What freedom in confession. To be unburdened. To be unburdened. To go to God like we have the Psalms to do and be super honest. Lord, I'm mad. I'm mad at them, 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 and actually I'm kind of mad at you. Thanks for asking. And the Psalms invite us to believe that God is strong enough as a father to receive whatever amount of pounding on his chest the children can deliver. And he tells us that if we will, if we will trust him in that, healing will come. What freedom, what a gift of grace a gift of grace from Jesus straight to you. Because if Nehemiah 9 teaches us anything, it's not that Adam or the sons of Adam or even corporate Adam, Israel, is enough. But that Jesus alone is the faithful one. 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful. He is faithful. He is the Christ. And he is just. To forgive us of our sins, all of them, east to the west, and cleanse us of all un.
righteousness. Do you understand that in Jesus' perfect life, he did what we could never do? He kept the law. He was not a lawbreaker, and in keeping the law, he could be a pure and spotless, unblemished lamb. lamb. So that in his life, keeping the law, in his death, he could receive the curse of the law for us. And in his resurrection, he could show us the spirit of the law, which is that the very nature of God is to set his love upon the unlovely. But what now? Where is Jesus at now? Well, he's up in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, playing chess. Wrong. Nor Scrabble, nor poker, nor gin rummy. Jesus is up in heaven right now, Hebrews tells us. As prophet, priest, and king, ruling and reigning, he will come again, and right now, he is interceding for us on behalf of the Father. You know what that means? It means that even as we come as God's children to confess, Jesus is already confessing your name to God, the Lord of all, forever. And friends, this is our only good news. This is, if you're a Christian, this is all you've got. You are not a better person than non-Christians. And trust me, I know a few of you, okay? And neither am I. You're not a better person. You're, you know, you stub your toe and I, your mind runs wild like everybody else. This is the only good news we have that when we as children come to confess, we can know that Jesus is already confessing us by name, having counted every hair on your head to his father forever. And so verse 32 is true when they pray, Lord, don't let our hardships seem little to you. Did you catch that? I love that verse. Now, therefore, our great God who keeps covenant, let not all the hardships seem little to you. They've spent all this time talking about how big and great God is, and it's easy to feel this way. In some ways, in 2020, we should feel this way. You know, some of you saw this last week, that in certain provinces in, in China right now, they are destroying churches, they're locking the buildings. I mean, we're back to the Colosseum here, folks. This is not a joke. There are Christians today who stood in other countries and said the Apostles' Creed with you who won't last the day. Take down the crosses and the paintings, put up a picture of Mao and Xi Jinping, and bow the knee or else. And I'm not beating up on China. This is happening all over the world. That's a big deal. And it's easy to see our stuff, you know, as merely first world problems. Perspective is good, but don't miss that God cares about your stuff too. Okay, it may not be the persecuted church in China. It may be something else. It may feel smaller, but God cares about you. Your hardship is not little to him. And could he prove that in any greater way than he did? By doing the biggest thing for your small hardship that could ever be done. Sending his one and only son to die for you and to raise you up from the dead. And if that is true, that unquenchable kindness then, like Paul says in Romans 2, is what leads us to repent, to go forth, to turn. Understand, repentance is not just, I turn away from sin, bad behavior. That is 5% of repentance. 95% is, I turn away from that, which does not satisfy, and I turn to God. 
I turn to my Father who loves me, who makes all things new. So understand this. If you want to be compassionate, if you want to go forth, if you want to go and love the world as we are commanded, confession is required for compassion. Our self-righteousness must be laid low at the cross of Christ. Confession is required for compassion. There is no way we can have empathy for the struggling, that we can forgive those who have betrayed us, that we can cleanse the dirty until we see that God has done all those things for us. That's the only way we can be healers and not haters as we're in the world and not of it. So that's our charge. Not only to get real with God and to get the record straight about what confession is, to understand how we get right in Jesus, but to go forth, to be public confessors in the world, to burn so brightly with your honesty and trust before God that others see and long to know the God that you know. And that's why true healing really only comes when we are honest with God in light of his true story of his faithful grace to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. And as we come to your table now, Lord, I pray that you would be very near to us. Jesus, would you please remind us that we are already your children. So therefore, we want to respond by being real with you and honest. Lord, you are so good, we have nothing to hide. May this wonderful table remind us that you meet us here with your real presence by faith. Lord, we know that the, the crackers and the juice, there's no magic there. But when we come by faith, Lord, you meet us with your very real presence. You lift us up out of the world into the heavenly realms so that we can even hear the voice of Jesus as we eat this meal. Would we hear the voice of Jesus, your son, confessing our name to you forever? We pray in Christ's name, amen.